No, Sandy is not coming up to talk today. That's not good. I'm, as Don Riley said, I'm Dave Bowen. I'm the newbie on the pastoral staff here. I'm delighted to be here, but I can fully appreciate your grief and Sandy not being here. So let's just get the ground rules really clear from the beginning. My job is to teach this morning from 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1 on a man's grief. Your job is to listen. If you finish your job before I finish my job, you're free to leave at any point. And, and I totally get that. It won't bother me in the least, and I'll just carry on, and um, we'll, we'll get it done. Hopefully what we'll get done is that we will all be deeply impacted by the message of the end of 1 Samuel, the beginning of 2 Samuel, talking about a man's grief. In fact, not just grief. It, it really gets to more than grief. It, it talks about emotions more generally even than grief in these two chapters. These are intense chapters. And if we finish this morning and we haven't felt the intensity, then I really haven't done my job very well. I haven't helped convey um, the significance of emotion and of deep, deep feeling. Yeah, even guys can have deep, deep feeling. Now, this isn't something that I've always known. Uh, this is a newer lesson for me through a, a very close friend from Tennessee and then North Carolina and a longtime friend. And the things that he went through to learn about his heart were very, very difficult, very, very hard things. But the benefit of his learning about his heart has extended not only to his family and to himself, but to me and to many other men who have heard his story. He introduced me um, to Chip Dodd, who's out of Nashville and has written a book called The Voice of the Heart. Just to set the tone of these two chapters, I want you to be thinking about your hearts. Here's how the book begins. Like many of us, I come from a place of woundings. For much of my life, I believe that if I could work hard enough, study long enough, pray earnestly enough, perform well enough, and be good or strong enough that I would make the grade, that I would be loved and accepted. In the process, I rejected my heart and lived a life without truthfulness and therefore without authentic relationships. I didn't know myself, I didn't know others, and I didn't know God. For many years, I struggled and fought to keep the voice of my heart silent. However, with much help from others and by earnestly seeking God, I discovered that in order to live fully, I need to awaken to how my heart was made as an instrument for relationship. As I came to a deep understanding of the content of my heart, I began to live a life that I had not even dared to imagine. I could not be who I was made to be until I was living fully out of my heart, and feelings are the first step. When I began to use feelings as they were intended, as a tool to build relationship, I couldn't help but begin to have an abundant life. I found that vulnerability took the place of control. Faith and trust replaced dread. Surrender replaced self-will. Grace replaced law. Compassion replaced apathy. And hope replaced resignation. God gave each of us feelings to move us to that place. So he wants us to use our minds to help our hearts surrender. Let's use our minds to help our hearts surrender. Grief is the predominant emotion that we're going to see this morning in these two chapters. And I want us to see three things about grief in three sections that we'll cover in these two chapters. 
The first of these sections tells us that grief is hard. Grief is very hard. This is raw um, emotion, raw life that leads us to this kind of grief. It doesn't just come uh, easily to us. No, it's, it's very painful, very difficult, very protracted when, when we have to grieve. It's wrenching. And the events that we are going to um, read about here are, in fact, very wrenching and are going to set the tone. So, let's look then at 1 Samuel chapter 31, begin with verse 1. Let me tell you this before we read. This chapter will gain in power when we realize that the events that Sandy talked about last week in 1 Samuel chapter 30 are occurring simultaneously with the events of chapter 31. Chapter 30 talks about what's happening with David down in the southern part, the southernmost borders of Israel in Ziklag, and now we're going to read about what's happening in Mount Galboa, which is to the northern extremity of the land of um, Judah and Benjamin, so 80 miles distant from one another, but happening at the same time. In chapter 30, David is smiting the Amalekites. In chapter 31, Saul, his sons, and his army are being smitten by the Philistines. So quite a contrast, and the contrast adds to the power, the potency of the emotional intensity that's being felt. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Benadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Grief's hard. Look what it takes to elicit grief in people to see these kinds of losses, staggering losses of life and limb that are going on on Mount Gilboa in this battle against a hated and feared enemy. And it's understandable that there would be grief, but grief at, at what price? Grief is hard when two conditions are met describing the two conditions of the two parts of this first section. Did that totally confuse you? In two parts, first segment, where are we here? We're still talking about grief is hard in 1 Samuel 31. We're going to do it in two sections. Verses 1 through 7, grief is hard when the enemies of the Lord are winning. We struggle with that. Good grief. When the enemies of the Lord win, that, that's just painful painful, painful to see the other team win. I um, moved here recently from North Carolina, 
and we lived in Chapel Hill for the first 10 years we were there. Then we lived in Durham, so we kind of go, we could feel good about both teams, UNC and Duke, but our kids don't. Our kids are true Tar Heel fans. They hate Duke, hate Duke. In fact, there's a book that's a, really a very good book. It's interesting. It's about a whole lot more than basketball, written by a very skillful writer in New York City who grew up in Chapel Hill. The title of the book is, To Hate Like This Is To Be Happy Forever. And the one thing that Will Blythe could get, he's this literary guy, this uh, artist, this writer, the one thing where he could connect with his dad, who was a professor at the medical school at UNC, was they would listen to Woody Durham on the radio describing the UNC basketball or watch it on TV, turn down the sound on TV, listen to Woody, and they would bond over UNC basketball. The one thing they could talk about. Their politics were different, their interests were different, they, father-son divide, the generational conflict were different, but, but they could bond over that. And they could bond with the mom, too. She was fully into it. And they hated Duke. So the, the bumper sticker is pretty prevalent in, in you know, um, there in, in Chapel Hill that it's a good day when Carolina wins and Duke loses. And if Carolina can't win, then Duke better not win. You got to have Duke lose, too, because you just hate it. All right, so a little glimpse for those of you that are Mississippi, Mississippi State, Alabama, Auburn, Yankees, Red Sox, Duke, UNC. It is hard. Yeah, Vandy, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I went to Vanderbilt. I'm not saying anything too bad, but uh, I'm trying to think. Who would be the rival there? Uh, oh, well, anyway. To have that enemy win makes grief exceedingly hard. It's really, really painful. And so look at the progression that's going on in this chapter when, yeah, the, the enemies of the Lord are winning. And that's how I'm going to describe the Philistines. They're enemies of the Lord. They're not just enemies of Israel. They, they hate Israel's God. They live in complete disregard for the values that the one true creator God stands for. They are more related to the Canaanites of centuries before. They are settlers who have come from Carthage um, and from other points around the, the Mediterranean basin. They've come to the coast of Israel, and they've set up shop there. They're powerful traders. They build a powerful civilization. But what marks their civilization um, is horrible sexual perversion because in their religion, the understanding is that Baal will send rain finally on the earth when he has an ejaculation with the Ashtaroth, which are the female consorts. And so if we can somehow titillate him into having an ejaculation, it'll put his seed, his sperm on the earth, and that'll cause things to grow. So we got to do some things that'll really get him going in the sacred groves. And so we go into the, into the trees up on the high places, and we do some things that are pretty despicable, but hopefully they turn Baal on and he will then have uh, ejaculations that'll cause crops to grow and all that. Can you imagine having to teach that in a sermon, how that would be awkward with women here as well? Uh, that would not go well. But that's the, that's the God-awful truth about the Philistine sexual perversion. But it's not just sexual perversion. There's also a perversion with regard to child sacrifice that is characteristic of Philistines, and we see it especially in the Carthaginian settlements of these um, Phoenician and Philistine uh, travelers, 
There are tons of graves in Carthage that a man named John Currid, who teaches now at um, Reform Seminary in Charlotte, unearthed in his doctoral work at the University of Chicago, and he documented all of these childhood graves in Carthage and realized that they were the result of ritual sacrifice. And what the ritual sacrifice would be is there would be this big burning furnace of an image of Baal, and the fire would be within the belly, and the hands were held out like this, and you'd put the child on the hands and pull the lever, and the gaping mouth would just absorb the children in the hope that maybe Baal would be kind to us, give us what we desire because we're giving something valuable to him. We're sacrificing our children in the fire. Now, you'll know from reading later in the Old Testament after 1 Samuel that Israel began to adopt that practice as they began to worship Baal and the Ashtaroth and unbelievable. And because of that kind of imitation of the nations round about, God spewed them out of his mouth and caused them to go into exile out of the land. But until then, just recognize the enemies of the Lord are triumphing here. And that helps us then make the connection. You know, we don't know many Philistines today. We don't have relationships. There's not a Philistine living next door to you. You say, oh, yes, but there is, you know, a Philistine. He has no tastes whatsoever. He can't abide my fine wines and my foods and my literary tastes. And so I don't mean Philistine in that sense. I mean the Philistines back here. We don't have them living next door. But we do have the Lord's enemies living around us in different places and we are to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, and that is good and that is right. But it's painful to us when the enemies of the Lord win, when that which is good is trampled in the dirt and bad prevails, when truth is on the scaffold and injustice is on the throne. That just drives us nuts and causes us to grieve, and that grief is very hard. It's very hard when the enemies of the Lord triumph. Well... That's exactly what's being laid out here. Philistines are fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines. That's just not right. The men of Israel, valiant, strong, and brave, are fleeing against these uncircumcised Philistines? How can that be? They're fighting against Saul's sons in verse 2. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, Philistines struck down three of his four sons. The fourth, Ishbosheth, who will figure in in 2 Samuel as David's rival to becoming the true king, isn't there for whatever reason. We don't know why. We don't know how he avoided the battle or if he was at the battle, how he avoided being killed. But for whatever reason, one son escapes. Three sons, however, do not escape, and they go down with their dad. And then when we come to um, verse... Uh, 3 and verse 7, we found out that the whole Israelite army goes down. The battle pressed hard against Saul. The archers found him. He was badly wounded by the archers. I'm probably the only one, well, maybe some others of you remember in the Lord of the Rings and the first uh, installment of that movie, or maybe in the book too, where this super um, million-dollar orc, you know, is uh, shooting... Um, Boromir, and he slices him, you know, several times with arrows, and he's just sitting there, and he's, he's ready to go down. Looks like he's going to die from the arrows, but he's going to have to finish him off, and then Aragorn comes out of nowhere and chops the head off of that horrible orc, um, and so that's a good ending in a way, but then he does die. But picture that scene of he's been shot by the archers. He's not going anywhere. He can't get up and run at this point. Saul's been shot through and the arrows are still in him, but he's still standing and still trying to fight, 
but he's worried that he won't be able to fight them off, and it's, it's not a pretty, pretty scene. And so Saul is, is going to go down here. Not only all Israel, not only his sons, but he's going to go down. He sees himself in this condition. He says to his armor bearer, hey, run me through, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me, abuse me, torture me, do awful things to me. I've already described for you what kind of people the Philistines are. It's not a stretch at all to think what they might do to the leader of Israel to show their utter dominance over Israel. They would have abused him. Maybe they would have done to him what they did to Samuel, I mean uh, Samson earlier, gouge out his eyes and, and make him their slave. Maybe not just gouge out his eyes, maybe, you know, oh, you call us uncircumcised, well, here's some stuff we'll do to you to show you what it's like to be really circumcised the whole way, or who knows. Saul's mind can go there, and he, he doesn't want that. He, he Run me through, armor bearer. But the armor bearer, who had to be very loyal and very brave in ancient Israel, and we've seen an armor bearer already do great things in chapter 14 with Jonathan and his armor bearer, and how that armor bearer stood right by Jonathan. Even though he didn't have a weapon, he was, I, I am with you, I'll do whatever you say, Jonathan. And they won a great victory in chapter 14. Two chapters later, who is Saul's armor bearer? But David himself. And now David's not with him. And his own armor bearer won't do what he says because he's asking him to do something wrong, to take his life. And the armor bearer won't lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed. He says, no, I, I can't do that, sire. I, I can't kill the Lord's anointed. I can't kill you, my king. I've pledged my loyalty to you. I cannot kill you. And so Saul then falls on his own sword because he's desperate. First he has the wounds of the archer. Then he has his fears. Gosh, what are they going to do to me? This, uh. And then after his fears, he's got desperation. Kill me. Run me through. And then after his desperation, we see the fallout. What happens because Saul takes his own life here? Verse 5. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Saul died, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And then further fallout, when the men on the other um, side of the valley and those who were beyond the Jordan River, which is pretty close by, and they're up on the mountains around Gilboa on the other side of the valley, away from the fighting, but still able to see the military movements. When they see Saul and his forces fleeing up the mountain to try to get away from the Philistines and find that they're being overtaken, and now they're all slaughtered, then the rest of them flee and run away. I'm not saying that Saul is ultimately responsible for the death of his armor bearer and for the fleeing of all of these other soldiers in Israel. But there is a sense in which he is and a sense in which any of us who has ever been tempted to take his own life needs to think very carefully that there will be unintended consequences of that decision. I have the deepest sympathy for Saul here in choosing to take his own life. It wouldn't be that much unlike a guy taking a cyanide pill when he's caught behind enemy lines in a horrible war and he knows they're going to torture him to get information and he just takes his life to kill himself. And maybe that's even the right thing to do in a situation like that. I, that's a hard call. I, I'm not going to sit in judgment on somebody who's been through a circumstance of that magnitude. But I will say that 
my inclination is in another direction, that I should not lift my hand against the Lord's, okay, maybe not anointed, but the Lord's created. You and I are created in the image of God. We have inherent worth and dignity by God's action in our lives. We bear his imprimatur, and therefore, for us to take our own lives, to deface the temple of the Holy Spirit, would be a great wrong, and therefore, I ought not to go that route. There will be consequences. You know, George Bailey has shown the consequences in It's a Wonderful Life, the great Christmas movie that a lot of us watch every, every year. What would it have been like if you had never lived? Saul, what would it have been like if you hadn't taken your own life? I don't know, don't know exactly, but at least I know that he wouldn't have taken, in fact, a cowardly way out. I don't want these uncircumcised, these totally uncivilized, these people without any fear of the Lord to get a hold of me because who knows what they'll do to me. And it was that fear that drove him to the desperate act of taking his own life. Now, again, I don't want us to sit in judgment on Saul exactly at this point, but I do want to pause for a moment of application for all of us. What is it that you fear so much that if it were to come upon you, you would be very tempted to take your own life? What is it that you fear that much? For some of it, you it would be if, if when I've lost my mind and I can't track my finances anymore, I can't you know, direct my company, I can't direct my family anymore, when I pull the plug, take my own life. That's courageous. No, it's not. For others of you, it's, well, if I can't have my vigor and my strength, if I can't walk on my own anymore, if I can't go out and conquer the world as I have in my youth, then... Life's not worth living anymore. Take me away. If I lose all my money in the stock market, it all goes down, this deal goes bad, I'm jumping off the window. I'm, it's over. I'm done. I'm killed. I cannot face my wife. I can't face my kids. I'm done. I, I'm, I'm out of here if that circumstance happens to me. What would it be for you? That thought, that window into your own heart, into your own soul could be very valuable to you today because that will help you do what the Apostle John tells us to do in the New Testament. My brothers, keep yourself from idols. There's an idol. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol. That which now I look to for my identity, for my significance, for my worth and purpose in life, and when that's gone, I have no more purpose in life. Kill me, take me out of here. Instead of saying, well, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. You use me however you want, abuse me however you want. I am yours, and I know that in following you, there is perfect freedom and perfect fulfillment. And so, Lord, painful as it may be, difficult as it may be, scary as it may be, I choose to follow you through this very difficult place you've taken me, and I will not take the quick way out or the easy way out. Some of you are way ahead of me already in making a contrast between, Paul, uh, between Saul, who's working his way through his wounding, and then his fear, and then his desperation to take his life. To another king of Israel, a king of kings, a great David's greater son, who also knows his wounding and has the imminent picture of his death and horrible torture in front of him. And he goes off by himself to pray at the end of the gospel accounts. 
He asks his disciples to pray with him. He needs some Jonathans. He needs some armor bearers. He needs some loyal and steady folk who have shared life with him and now will stand with him to the end and uphold him as he has to drink the cup that the Father has prepared for him all the way to the dregs. And they fall asleep on him. And he's terrified, thinking of the torture, sure, probably, but more than that, of the alienation from the Father that he will have to bear at that point when he will have to take on the sins of the whole world on himself. Martin Luther famously said in his commentary on Galatians, kind of a good discussion question for some Bible study, who is the greatest sinner that has ever lived? The greatest sinner that has ever lived. I don't know, Hitler maybe, Stalin, Genghis Khan. I mean, you want to come up with some other great, great villain, sinner who has ever lived. And Luther's answer is shocking. The greatest sinner who ever lived is Jesus Christ. For he took on himself the sins of Adolf Hitler, the sins of Joseph Stalin, the sins of any of the sins that they committed were sins that he took on himself. Not necessarily their personal, them personally, but no sin can be conceived that Jesus didn't take upon himself. And so horrendous was his sinful nature at that particular point in time when he hung on the cross that he cries out in agony and dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His despair was greater than anyone's despair, but he did not shrink back from it. He drank to the dregs the cup that was prepared for him. He didn't want it. He asked that God would take it away. Lord, if there's any way, take it away. And he went away again and asked the same thing a second time. He went away again and asked the same thing a third time. His friends are asleep. He's, got, he's abandoned. He said, Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And the answer was clear. There is no other way. So when you are hitting the teeth by someone's question of, you Christians are so arrogant. How can you say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father through him. How can you possibly say that? Surely there's another way. There are other paths up the mountaintop. I, you're way beyond my pay grade here now. I'm not really a theologian. I don't know all that. I do know this, though, that the God that I worship and serve is a loving and a powerful God and a wise God. And when his only begotten son prayed to him in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, Father, if there is any other way, take it. If there's any other way, if somebody maybe by his or her own efforts could possibly be good enough to join us in heaven, could we go that route? Yeah, we'll have a lower population, but I can't do this. The loving father that is portrayed in Old Testament and New would never have sent his son through that if, in fact, there had been another way. There wasn't. The contrast between Saul facing death and our Lord Jesus facing death is very great. And hallelujah, what a Savior. Yeah, it's a downer to start our time together this morning, early in the morning, with those sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down. But it's appropriate for us to be there. Again, to ramp up the emotional intensity and to recognize what we're facing as we look at this picture of Saul's demise and get just a glimpse, by way of contrast, with the demise of great David's even greater son. Grief is hard when the enemies of the Lord are winning. Grief is even harder when the enemies of the Lord triumph. It's not just that they won, 
No, it's worse than that. They get to celebrate. It's a great contrast with 1 Samuel 17 when David defeated Goliath. Now we see the same thing happening, but now it's not the Israelites who are rejoicing. The Israelite women who are singing that Saul is slain as thousands and David is ten thousands. The head of Goliath isn't being paraded through the settlements of Israel. No, it's the head of Saul that's being paraded through the Philistine camp. Their women are cheering, and it's just really, really difficult. Verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Horrible. Let's stop there just for a second. The enemies of the Lord triumph. They abuse the leader. They spread the news. They claim the supremacy. We're number one. We're number one. They totally slaughtered Israel. You know, the Bible tells us, uh, Paul in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Well, here we've got the opposite going on. They're rejoicing with those who weep. They're taunting them. They're rubbing their faces in this defeat. And they are rejoicing with those who weep. And it's, it's painful. It's awful to have this triumph, this exultation going on. Notice how quickly your team leaves the court when they've lost on a buzzer beater to that team. That team storms the court, they cheer, they yell. The other team gets off the court as quickly as they can. They can't stand to be there for the enemy celebration. And that's what's happening here, the enemy celebration. However, verse 11, a glimpse of light, a glimpse of hope, a glimpse of virtue in the midst of great vice. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. War is hell. War is just undisputed unspeakably horrible, and post-traumatic stress disorders abound from people coming back from war, whether it's World War II, the Korean War, or all the many wars that this country has been involved in since then, in one way or another, right up until the present. War is hell. But we all also know that there's something about war that brings out not only the worst in human beings, but also the greatest and the best. In this little glimpse from the last three chap uh, verses of this chapter, we get a reminder that Saul wasn't all bad. He wasn't always selfish, and narcissistic. He wasn't always just looking out for himself. He wasn't always saying, my will be done, not thy will be done, as he did at the end. No, early on, he had done what God had raised him up to do, and that was to lead Israel to victory over the Philistines. And he had done that. And not just the Philistines, but others in the land. And he had this um, deal with Israelite town of Jabesh-Gilead who was being threatened by the Ammonites back in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And Saul marched all night to get to Jabesh-Gilead to protect them and to um, 
liberate them from the Ammonites. It was a great victory, a great victory. Well, now it's many years later, decades later. And there's one group in Israel that will never forget Saul, the heroic leader, the man ahead taller than anybody else in the entire country, the one who did rescue them from the hand of the Ammonites and the Philistines and others, and that was the people of Jabesh-Gilead. So when they heard, and they're 12 miles away from Mount Gilboa, they hear that at Beth Shan, the headless body of Saul is being displayed on the wall for all to see as we triumph over our enemy. We mock. He saved others. He can't save himself. Oh, yeah, we remember that mocking also in the haunting words of how deep the Father's love for us, that great modern hymn. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Well, they're mocking, abusing the body of the leader of Israel. And when the residents of Jabesh Gilead hear about that, they march all night at great risk to themselves. I mean, they're a small number. How are they going to you know, pull this off without being slaughtered? Like, well, if we get slaughtered, we get slaughtered. But he came to our rescue, and he saved this town from Philistine occupation or from Ammonite occupation years earlier. Therefore, we're going to save him, and they do. What an incredible rescue operation. What valor, what heroism, what guts to go right into the face of an overwhelming force of enemy and to say, we're not going to, you're not treating our leader like that. They went all night, took the body of Saul and his bodies of his sons from the wall, and they came to Jabesh and they burned them, perhaps concerned for the decay already taking place within the bodies, for bodies weren't normally burned in Israel, but they burn them and then they bury the bones. Later, David will take those bones and take them and bury them in the, in the family um, funeral plot for Saul and his sons as a sign of respect as well. Yeah, war is hell, but there's some great things, some high heroism that come from it. This is not the best of all possible worlds. As um, Voltaire's book Candide makes fun of Dr. Pangloss, who says, oh, this is the best of all possible worlds. Good things are happening when all of these horrible things happen over and over again to Candide. And Dr. Pangloss, his philosophic advisor, so it's the best of all possible worlds. It's not the best of all possible worlds. But this is the best way to achieve the best of all possible worlds. And we wouldn't see heroism such as is uh, shown by the men of Jabesh Gilead if we didn't have a situation in which there was great evil to fight and great fear to be faced. But because of that, because of that pain, because of that hardness of the rawness of life that produces this kind of grief, the higher virtues can emerge that would never emerge otherwise. So we have to trust God knows what he's doing, even in allowing evil in the world that he created, because from it, he will create a world in which there are people with the patience of Job, the perseverance of Job, with the compassion of the Lord Jesus, who learned obedience through the things that he suffered, according to Hebrews 5.8, that even the Lord Jesus became mature, learned obedience through the things that he suffered. That's where those higher virtues are brought out. So don't despise the trials and the struggles and the tribulations that you're going through at this season of your life. No, God intends good to come from them. God wants to teach you and me through these very hard times. There are opportunities for valor here, men. Opportunities for valor that you will face today when you are tempted to cuss like a pirate, to throw things against the wall, to treat people that you're working with like dirt. There are opportunities for valor here. Do not go there. Turn the other cheek. Even when you're being abused, you turn the other cheek. You go the extra mile. 
that your Lord and Savior who endured such incredible suffering for us as we have just sung about, that we follow in his steps, suffering as he did if we can, and crying to him for help. Strengthen us because we don't have the strength in ourselves. Grief is hard when the enemies win, when the enemies triumph. I want us to see now next as we move to the second Samuel in chapter 1 that grief is fierce. Grief is fierce. We're going to read now another account of what happened. And you're going to think, whoa, wait a minute, I think there's a contradiction here, maybe one or two, which is right. The Bible's got contradictory accounts kind of sloppily thrown together in an editing job. Hey, don't tell me the Bible is inerrant. You can't tell me that God inspired this. If you've got two different accounts, uh, there's something going on there. Stay tuned. 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, pause just a moment. So again, you see 1 Samuel 30 is occurring at the same time as 1 Samuel 31. David fighting against the Amalekites down in the southern part of the territory. Saul and his sons and his army fighting against the Philistines at Mount Gilboa in the northern part. It's 80 miles between the two. It takes about three days for that messenger from the battlefield at Mount Gilboa in the north to make it down to the south at Ziklag. At the same time that David's winning, Saul is losing. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? He said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I just happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? He answered, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. We'll stop there and observe that grief, in addition to being hard, is fierce. Grief is fierce. You start to experience strong emotion and pick any one of them. Chip Dodd in the book that I started with is going to give you eight. I really prefer that. I mean, I know over the years, 
Um, different people have given me sheets of emotion words to use with your wife, you know, that you can talk about your emotions like, I don't know, how are you feeling? Fine? You know, fine's not really a good emotion word. Your wives aren't terribly satisfied with that as you're sharing your heart with them. So you get whole sheets of paper with all kinds of words that suggest emotion. But Chip Dodd says, no, they're really just eight. Just eight emotions. Just like they're just eight notes in the scale in Western music and, um, you know, a 10 base for our number system. They're just a limited number, just eight. And among them is grief or sadness. It's a very powerful emotion. But when you get one emotion operating, all the rest of the emotions are heightened. We're all feeling it pretty dear. So you've been afraid sometime. You heard a, a noise in your house. You weren't sure what it was. Something seemed to rise. You were walking out with a baseball bat knowing not what you're going to find, and you're ready. To, you've got the adrenaline flowing, and all of a sudden, you know, your wife says, Honey, will you come in? What? You know, you yell. You're just mad because you're scared. Well, it's not the way you ought to talk to your wife, but, but you're ramped up. Well, here the emotion is ramped up, and David is fierce. He's been eager to hear how this battle went. Sandy told us last time how he got out of having to go to war against Israel. I mean, it would have been a horrible thing as he's trying to pull off this charade of being a loyal Philistine um, to um, the king down there. No, no, he, he can't pull that off. And God providentially helps him escape from that dilemma. And then he goes back and finds Ziklag taken by the Amalekites. And, but he, is he interested in how that battle went? Of course he is. Is he concerned for his good friend Jonathan? Of course he is. And for Saul? And so here comes somebody with dirt on his head, his clothes torn, obviously with bad news, coming from the battlefield. And he goes, what's going on? How'd it go? He asks five questions, and his ferocity is seen in the interrogation that he gives this young man. First, where did you come from? I came from the battlefield up in Mount Goboa. I came from where Saul and his, his sons um, were fighting. All right, how did it go? Verse 4, he answered, the people fled from the battle. Also, many of the people are fallen and dead. Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. How do you know that they're dead? Well, I just happened to be there. Stay tuned for that. I, I, I just happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And while I was there, I saw Saul there leaning on a spear. The chariots and horsemen were close upon him. He looked behind him, and he saw me, and he called me, and, and answered, here I am. And he, so he, he asked me to kill him, so I killed him. I saw Jonathan there. I saw him dead. Fourth question, where do you come from? Verse 13, he's already told you that. I'm the son of a sojourner. I take that personally, having the sojourners CC as my congregational community at, um, at Second Presbyterian Church. That is not the sojourners for which we are named in the sojourner CC. He's not a sojourner in that way, but he's an Amalekite. There's some real irony there with an Amalekite. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul was sent by the Lord on a mission to wipe out the Amalekites because of their historic hatred for Israel and how they didn't help them at all at the time of the Exodus, but they fought against them when they were vulnerable and weak and didn't have military experience. And so God says it's time to pay back the Amalekites for their sorry, sorry value system and for the way in which they have oppressed my people from the beginning. And Saul doesn't carry out the mission completely. And he is rejected as king at that point. Samuel comes to Saul and says, why didn't you do what God commanded? He told you to wipe them all out. And he said, well, I wiped out most of them, but I kept a lot of the sheep to offer his sacrifices to the Lord. Isn't that good? Aren't I being a good religious king? And Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
and to heed is better than the fat of rams. You've lost your kingship because you didn't obey the Lord your God. Because you didn't triumph over the Amalekites, he doesn't tell him this, but isn't it interesting? At the end of your life, you're going to be under the feet of an Amalekite. Now, the question is, is this Amalekite telling the truth? Because if he is, then we do have a contradiction between the last chapter of 1 Samuel and the first chapter of 2 Samuel. I have every indication to think he's not telling the truth. This guy is like another scumbag that we know from a recent, well, relatively recent uh, movie called Tenardier. Tenardier and Les Mis, who goes around to rob the, the, bear, the dead in the great revolution that arises. He, he's not on either side. He's just there to pick the pockets of the dead people to see if there's anything of value there. He is, he is scum. We recently were, were broken into in our house, and um, my daughter, I'm, I'm glad, proud of her in one sense, but I wasn't saying amen in another sense. She's praying for the people that robbed us and just thinking, you know, maybe they needed bread. You know, maybe they needed to make something. Maybe it's Jean Valjean, and, uh, you know, we, we need to have mercy and pity. And I'm thinking, that's not Jean Valjean who robbed us. That's Tenardier who robbed us. You know, you ought to get it. <laughs> the next day, I was putting up some silverware, which they didn't take silver. It was interesting. I was washing it and putting it away, and I put it away and opened the silver cabinet where it is, and I saw a note in there that my wife had written, unbeknownst to me, she didn't tell me about this, and the note simply says, if you steal this silver, please watch Les Mis, and this I didn't know. She then bought a DVD of Les Mis and put it in the silver cabinet. Please watch this and know that your soul has been purchased for God if you steal this silverware. So... <clears throat> My family is much more spiritual than I am. I'm seeing Tenardier here, the scum and what he's doing. So here's an Amalekite. Is he there as part of the Israelite army? No. Is he there as part of the Philistine army? No. Is he just hanging around hoping that more people will die so he can take valuable stuff? Absolutely. And did he, in fact, kill Saul? Probably not. I trust the narrator who tells us this story, not only in 1 Samuel 31, but also in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, another version of the story there. And neither version lines up with this Amalekite's version. He's lying through his teeth, hoping he'll get a reward from David, who will become the next king. And hey, I'm just here to tell you that the king is dead, and you're the guy now. And he thinks it's all going to work out well, and it doesn't. David says, how was it that you thought you could lift up your hand against the Lord's anointed? And these five questions that he asked this guy unmask him and show him to be either a murderer, which David probably thinks he is. David doesn't have another story to go on at this point, so he probably thinks he's telling the truth. But if, I am, if you are telling the truth, you just signed your own death warrant because you raised up your hand against the Lord's uh, anointed, and I wouldn't do that even though I had just cause and two great occasions, but I wouldn't do that. So he has him summarily executed for that. Well, grief is fierce when asking questions and also acting on the answers. Finally, grief is good. You don't believe that, many of you right now. But I hope in a short time to persuade you that grief is good. In this book, again, The Voice of the Heart, which talks about the emotion of sadness. It says this, um, sadness is the feeling that speaks to how much you value what is missed, what is gone, what is lost. It also speaks of how deeply you value what you love, what you have, what you live. Sadness is proportional. The more sadness you feel after a loss, 
the more you value what is lost. The more you live an open-hearted life of fullness, the more you lose. Sadness gives us the gift of valuing and honoring life. When I die, I hope there will be a lot of people and great sadness at my funeral. I've heard him speak. I mean, he says, when I die, I hope people cry their eyes out at my funeral. I want people to weep about my being gone. I want them to cry because the man they knew is no longer with them. I want them to say that I was known, that I was loved, that I mattered. And while they're honoring my life with their tears, they will be honoring their own hearts even more because they have opened their hearts to being known. One of the gifts of sadness is that it is the first step toward healing from loss. Sadness speaks directly to our need to grieve for what is gone. If we grieve genuinely, we eventually come to accept life on life's terms. Through grief, we find comfort and deeper wisdom as we move about in life in the absence of who or what was lost. And from that acceptance, we find healing. It's good to grieve. Listen to David grieve. Verse 17, 2 Samuel 1. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. David takes what he's feeling, and then he tries to memorialize it, to preserve it. And grief is worth preserving. We see that in verses 17 and 18. David laments with this lamentation over Saul and his son, and he said it ought to be taught to the people of Judah perpetually, enduringly, and he wrote it down in the book of Jashar, a book that's mentioned also in the book of Joshua. We don't have it now, but it was a source book of quotations, of poems, of other things that informed our copies of the scriptures. Well, so that source book has been lost, but we have the scripture that God intended for our good. David wanted his grief to be memorialized. He wanted it to last for a long time. Because even though it's very concrete grief for one particular individual, especially Jonathan, but also for Saul and for the army of Israel, it speaks to every one of us in our grief. So, grief is good. It's worth preserving. And it's good for you to preserve your grief. I don't know when the last time you grieved deeply was, but I would like to offer you this suggestion. You say, I'm an engineer. I don't do this. Yeah, you can. Write a poem. 
try to express the loss that you feel from your dad dying or your mom dying or that friend dying or your spouse dying or that child dying or try to express it but package it, push it together. Because Hebrew poetry, unlike English poetry, doesn't uh, rely primarily on rhyme, but it relies on other elements that are also part of English poetry, and we can relate to, and we see them here. It relies on word packing, terseness. A lot of grief poured out in a very short space in this poem. And by packing it together, it becomes very powerful. Word patterns are important in Hebrew poetry. The symmetry, the parallelism of line upon line, the repetition of certain refrains like how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen, that repetition, that word packaging is also important. And then Hebrew poetry relies especially on word picturing, vivid word pictures. The bow did not turn back. The sword was out there fighting Swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. So eagles, lions, bow, sword, all of those images make this really powerful and elicit strong emotion from us, as poetry alone can do. Pack it down, express your grief, because it's worth preserving, and it is worth expressing. It's worth expressing to show high value. Look at verses 19 and 25, which form bookends on this, on this section. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, in verse 19. In verse 25 at the end, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. It's quite possible, as commentaries say, that your glory could also be translated gazelle, same word in, in Hebrew, and it could be a reference to Jonathan in both places. He's unnamed in verse 19, he's named in verse 25. But those are bookends to this poem. At the beginning and at the end, he shows that he's thought about this a lot. And then it shows deep value. The depth of, of David's feeling is seen in the repetition in verses 19, 25, 27 about how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen. He wants to, in the first of those three stanzas broken off by the mighty have fallen, he wants to show denial of triumph to enemies. He doesn't want them to exult. Don't tell it in Gath, the capital city of the Philistines. Don't let the word get there. Don't ever let them think that they won. I don't want them to have that luxury, that triumph. I want to deny that to them. There's anger against the scene of the lost. You mountains of Gilboa, let there never be rain or dew on you again. Fig tree, may you never bear fruit again, Jesus says in the New Testament. We see that there's this strong emotion taken out against an inanimate object, but it really speaks to us that all of a sudden he's personified this mountain. And then sadness about the loss is expressed in the last stanza, 26 and 27. Jonathan, I am distressed for you, my brother. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. That's not a homosexual relationship being described there. It's a relationship of incredible covenantal love that Jonathan, the next in line for the throne, willingly gave up that privilege and said, David, you should be the next king, and I'll serve you forever, and I'll never um, forsake loyalty to your line. May you have a friend like that. May I have a friend like that. May Second Presbyterian Church be led by elders who love like that, who love one another, and then love their churches, 
love the men in their church. And may the men in the church then love their wives and their children with love like that, that is loyal, that is fierce. Yes, it's hard, but it's worth it. And I'm going to feel deeply to the glory of God and to the good of the heart that he gave to me. It's new territory for all of us. But I'm asking you from 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1 to feel deeply and to bind yourself to a few other men, to bind yourself to the Lord your God with pouring out your heart to him. I'm asking you to feel your heart deeply to the glory of God who made it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us take all of this information and through the hard work before us of meditation, turn it into application for your glory, for our good, and for the good of others whom we may impact because you have put us into relationship with them. In the name of great David's even greater son, our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.